This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to talk about bike theft in just a couple of minutes. Have you ever had a bike stolen? Have you ever had anything stolen? The worst. The worst. Where you think, why? Why did this just happen? Why is my bike lock sitting here on the ground where my bike used to be? It's cut. The bike is gone. Don't you know that that was getting me around? Don't you know that that was something that was purchased for me by fill-in-the-blank? Those stories are everywhere. And police are largely left to hoping that maybe there's there's a marking on it. Maybe it just turns up somewhere because somebody ditches it and something can connect you to it again. No guarantee, though. Absolutely no guarantee. Well, now there is something brand new that we're going to talk about that may assist people in getting their bikes back. So that is coming up as we get an opportunity right now to speak with someone who was part of an interesting announcement this morning that gave photo opportunities virtually and presented this idea virtually. It is a bike registry, courtesy of London Police Services. And joining us right now is Constable Carl Noel. Constable Noel, how are things? Well, things aren't too bad. Thank you very much for asking. Well, thanks so much for being here to talk more about this, because this is an initiative that sounds like it could have a whole lot of merit. So let's talk about how this is going to work. What do we need to know? Absolutely. So for the longest time, uh, we have not had a formal bicycle registry in the City of London, uh, which is problematic in uh, being a police officer and uh finding bicycles or people with bicycles that that one of these things doesn't look like the other. Um, We're unable to uh, find the original owners of these bikes, so they end up at auction, and the uh, percentages of recoveries are really, really low. Now, with those auctions, people always kind of look forward to the police auctions, but at the same time, if we could get those bikes back to their rightful owners, you have to appreciate, yeah, no, that's that's probably number one in all of this. So if someone owns a bike in the city of London and wants to get in on the registry, what do they do? Oh, it's really easy. So um, we've engaged the services of uh, 529 Garage. They're North America-wide. They're bicycle registration. Um, they're, they're basically an app. Uh, so... What you do is you would go to the London Police website. You will look for the bicycle registry right now. It's on the very front page. And uh, once you get on to our uh, London Police registry, you would put your name. At the very minimum, we need an email address that we could contact you at. And you have the option of giving more info. You would then register your bicycle by make, model, serial number, colors, any other personal effects you may have changed on the bike to make it look unique. Um, and once you are, you're allowed to upload up to six photographs of your bicycle. So we encourage people to take a picture, a side profile, a picture of the serial number, a picture of the owner with their bicycle. And then you register 
Um, what happens then is you get prompted by 529 Garage uh, by email to complete your registration, and you have to create a password for your account. Okay. Excellent. So pretty standard stuff. And then you get an opportunity to have your bike listed in this registry. We're talking with Constable Carl Noel about the London Police Services bike registry. And in terms of finding bikes, can you give us a sense from a policing standpoint how often things may turn up and you think, man, I wish I knew whose this was? Well, that's that's a good question. So uh, we can use uh, the city of Vancouver as an example. Uh, they've been uh, they've they've been working with Five Two Nine Garage for the last five years, and they have uh, been able to return bikes to proper owners, and they've uh, statistically reduced their bicycle theft between thirty and forty percent, depending on specific areas of the city. So. Um, if, if you want, we can talk about how this is, um, driven by the sheer number of people that are going to use it. Yeah, let's, let's definitely look at that. What are we seeing in terms of numbers you've seen other places? So once you've registered your bicycle, uh, you would download the 529 Garage app to your phone. And if you turn on notifications, if someone's bike goes missing within a 15-kilometer radius of where you are, you will be notified to, with photographs to look for a specific bike that is now uh, being reported stolen. So that works for you as well. If your bike goes missing, you can send a push notification to all 529 Garage uh, app users, and then everyone's on the lookout for the bike. So it it works by volume. The more people we have registering their bikes and the more people that have the 529 Garage app, then the greater the successes. And there are some great and valuable bikes out there. And Constable Noel, as you can attest, it doesn't matter what kind of lock you put on it anymore, does it? You've got people who have you know, battery-powered grinders. They walk up, they can take down those locks, and, and there isn't much we can do against them, is there? Well, there are some pretty determined people sometimes that are uh, going to try and take your bike. So some of the obvious things uh, to park your bike out in the open where it's visible, we have natural surveillance, which means hopefully there's people around that um, makes the opportunist uh, think twice. Uh, there are better locks. There are some that are easily defeated. So if you spend $1,000 on your bike, maybe you should spend more than 10 or $20 on a lock. Um, <laughs> no, excellent point. Well, Constable Noel, we really appreciate the initiative overall. Thank you so much for outlining it for us. Have yourself a great day. Okay, thanks for having me on, Mike. That is Constable Carl Noel talking about the London Police Services Bike Registry. So really easy to make use of. Just go to the London Police Services website, and it's on the front page right now. Get some pictures in of your bike. You download the 529 app, the 529 Garage app. You get in on that, and then you've got more eyes out there on all kinds of bikes and whether or not they are being stolen and then... You know, again, you get something of yours stolen. It doesn't matter whether it's a shoe. It doesn't matter what it is. It was yours, and somebody took it. Now here's an opportunity for you to try and take it back.
can you go and run on a track? Can you go to a baseball diamond? Can I walk on the sidewalk? Can I talk with my neighbor across the street? There are all kinds of things that seem to be getting a a little muddled and confused. Well, I can't help you with necessarily the track, although I believe you can, because Toronto, you can, and that applies to Ontario. I'll, I'll figure that out for sure before the end of the show. But in terms of one area, we can get some better clarity on what is happening, and that is public transit. Simply because yesterday we heard the recommendation that came from officials in the province that we wear masks when riding public transit. Now, non-medical masks, please don't take up the N95s. Please don't wear those to the grocery store. Those need to be for frontline workers. But how about masks themselves? And how about London Transit itself? Joining us right now is the chair of the London Transit Commission, Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. Councillor Squire, how's Thursday? It's really good. I'm outside, I'm social distancing, and I'm talking to you. What could, what could be better? All right. Well, I I love that. I can almost hear birds chirping like when we were talking with Marilyn. Let's talk about whether you need a mask when riding a London Transit bus. It's a recommendation, but if you and I were right now to say, it's a beautiful day, you know what, I think we're going to go across town, let's board a bus, let's get there that way, would we need to be wearing a mask? Well, you don't, it's not a, as you say, it's a recommendation, but it's a recommendation that I think is, is a good one. I think it's one that uh, that should be followed, and we'll be meeting next week to determine if it's going to be something we we require. So it's not at that stage yet, but everybody I've heard from says, "Look, it's it's not a uh, it's not going to prevent you from catching COVID, but it at least extends that protection. You know, if you cough or you sneeze or you're you're talking, that that you won't possibly infect someone else. So it's not a guarantee, but it, it's something the government came out with." Uh, yesterday. It's a little surprising to, to me that they've waited so long. I mean, transit and riding transit has been a hotbed, a hot button issue since we started it. You know, some people want us to shut it down. Some people want us to keep going. So it's helpful guidance from the, the province, but we're, we're trying to do most of these things already. And we've ordered the plexiglass uh, uh, barriers to protect our drivers. So as soon as those arrive, we'll be able to put those up. So I think we're doing most of those things already, and I think most people are. So the major concern I have right now is that we're, we're coming up on, on our sort of deadline date, which is June 15th, for being able to continue to operate uh, the system without, uh, without fares. And that's, that's going to be difficult if we get to the point on June 15th and we don't see any additional funding source from anywhere, including fares, we're going to be in a really tough situation to continue operating. Well, wow. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about that then right now. You just spelled that out as if you don't get money from somewhere else, it will be difficult to continue operating. It's that cut and dried? Yeah, to me it is. And and I'll tell you why. We've basically already gone to our own budget and, and put off everything that we were going to do in terms of expanding our service, new routes, better frequencies, That's, and even industrial service. We put all of that off until 2021. That basically allows us to operate within our current budget uh, until the end of uh, the end of, or I should say, June fifteenth. After that, you know, unless we get money through fares or another source of revenue, and of course we're talking about other levels of government, it's going to be very difficult. And the city, as you know, I'm a councillor too, so I know we're looking at a possible 
approximately $30 million deficit at the end of August. So these are we're starting to get to the point where we'll be hitting a wall and some, some really tough decisions will have to be made. I don't know what they are right now, but you can imagine to keep the transit going after June 15th, we'd have to make some pretty pretty big cuts unless we see other money. And where could those cuts come from, Councillor Squire? Well, they would come from roots. Um, you know, we always and, and always have to look at staffing levels because we're only operating now during the week at the Saturday level of service. So we've been able to cover it off so far with leaves of absence and holidays and things like that so that we're not doing that. But it, it's going to get more difficult after that. And uh, what I really worry about at the end of the day, if we even get through that, what's, what's our ridership? going to look like coming out of this there's all the big brt plans things like that 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 are going to cost a lot of money what if what are we going to do if that ridership doesn't uh, doesn't bounce back so transit's not in any different any different situation than any other public service where we're still trying to make things go but it's really tough we're talking with the chair of the London Transit Commission, Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. Councillor Squire, you also mentioned the plexiglass, and we got a question yesterday from yep. Alan who had asked, why wasn't there plexiglass in buses sooner? And then we got some response saying, well, it's not as easy as just saying, put this in. You have to worry about drivers getting up to assist people who may need to be assisted. Yep. You have to worry about visibility, that sort of thing. So plexiglass is on order. Would that allow people to board at the front of the bus or do you envision things staying the same where you're still boarding at the back of the bus no i mean that's one of the purposes we were going to do the plexiglass i think anyways and just to answer the question why not until now we had it on as a test program actually for two years on on some buses we had to see how it would work in terms of customer service what did the drivers think of it and of course covid has moved that up you know it wasn't wasn't going to be in the budget until a little later, but we moved it up and, and pushed aside a couple of other items. They're on order, but I don't anticipate right now we're going to have them for June 15th. So that, that creates a situation. I think a lot of uh, uh, transit authorities have been ordering these, these plexiglass uh, uh, barriers. They're not something that someone can just make up. Uh, they, they're actually made up by the manufacturers of the buses because they're the ones who can retrofit them properly to the buses. And it's, it's it's not just plexiglass. It's a special type of bevel glass. So we've ordered it. As soon as it gets in, we'll be installing it. And that would solve quite a few of the problems to at least get people who, who don't want to ride buses uh, back on them. Because I just in observing, you know, we see pictures now and again of crowded buses. But you'll also see a lot of buses that have almost no riders on them. People are a little anxious, obviously, about getting on buses right now. And we're going to hope that we can get those plexiglass barriers in and, and get a bounce back in our ridership. Anything else planned in terms of, you know, I know the buses are cleaned as often as they can be, but in in anything else that may be happening in the near future? No, I mean, I, I saw what the government put out yesterday. There's nothing really uh, in there that we haven't been trying to do. The big challenge with buses is, is social distancing. And again, um, people have to take the steps themselves to social distance. You know, our, our uh, staff has been fantastic. You know, our drivers uh, are up to, the, to our senior staff in terms of testing all kinds of new things to make, uh, to make things easier. And, and we've had really good luck in keeping our, uh, keeping our staff safe, which is a huge, huge priority. And that's worked out well. It's just the revenue side. When you're, you can imagine if you're not collecting fares, it costs us about $2 million a month in lost revenue. If you're from Toronto, for instance, it's $2 million a week. So... Uh, transit authorities all over Canada are facing the same issues, and 
that's the other thing we have. We're, we're not in it alone, so we can reach out to other transit authorities and say, what are you doing in these circumstances and, and pick up some ideas? So I'm, I'm optimistic, but it's, it's a tough circumstance. But you know what? It's tough for everybody, so it's not for me to complain. Well, Councillor Squire, thank you so much for updating. It didn't feel like a complaint at all. We really appreciate the information and the time. It's always good to be with you, and I, I get asked those other questions. So this one on garage sales, if people ask you about garage sales, we're recommending that you not do them. Uh, no. But if you, if you do, you could get in trouble if you have more than five people and not social distancing. So we're recommending that, that people not do garage sales at this point in time. And do we know, are, are we able to use things like tracks or go into like a baseball diamond? I know Toronto has, has kind of cleared the way for that. D- is that different for us yeah, or is that a provincial thing? That, yeah, I don't think we're at that point right now. We made, we made uh, decisions locally that we weren't going to allow people on sort of organized uh, uh, soccer fields and things like that because it, it's tough to social distance. So as far as I'm concerned, I don't see that as being something we're allowing as of yet, but I think it's going to happen very soon because we're getting those fields uh, ready if you're around the city. But right now, we, we really suggest people continue to use parks as, as walkthrough, basically. And that's as far as I know, that's where we are. And that's primarily because people start grouping, and we don't want to see that. That's it. Well, Councillor Squire, uh, keep physical distancing. And again, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Take care. Bye. Take care. That is the chair of the London Transit Commission, Ward 6 Councillor, Phil Squire. So, no, don't run under the track. Don't run under the baseball field just yet. It, it gets a little confusing from municipality to municipality. But we're here to try and be as, as clear and as up-to-date as we can be at all times. If you have lived in London For 15 years, or even if you're listening right now and you used to live in London, 15 years ago today, May the 21st of 2005, was one of those days that people just hoped for. And then when it turned out it was going to happen, they waited for it. And even though being inside then the John Labatt Center, now Budweiser Gardens, on the first day of the Memorial Cup tournament... That was big. Somehow this was even bigger. That entire year, the team of the century year, that was just bigger from all all facets, from all angles. And this was the day that London opened up the tournament in London against Sidney Crosby and the Ramuski Oceanic. And the game somehow had more hype than many, if any, junior hockey game it ever had. And this one managed to exceed the hype. This game didn't just match it. It was it was better than you could have ever written it. The Knights ended up winning it 4-3 in overtime. I don't think we're giving anything away. But let's get to kind of some inside stuff on that game and what it was like. Joining us right now to give us a little bit of a reprieve from the fight against COVID-19 is the captain of the team of the century of the London Knights, Danny Savret. Danny, how you doing? Good, Mike. How you been? Hey, doing okay. Can't wait to tell some hockey stories and uh, and get just uh, just a couple minutes away from COVID nineteen before we get back into some updates and things like that. This anniversary, fifteen years now. First of all, I don't know where fifteen years have gone. You you now have a family, and you know, fifteen years have have kind of progressed right through. How's everything going for you, even before we get to hockey? 
everything's going well. Uh, obviously, we love to get some live sports back on TV, but uh, it, it's been interesting watching some of the older classic games uh, from the 90s and 80s and, and what have you, and uh, just seeing how the game has evolved uh, over the many years. Yeah, pretty amazing to watch goalies in the 80s. Everybody seems to always pick on the goalies in the 80s. You almost feel for them. Yeah, they're, uh, I think that position has evolved quite a bit from that. <laughs> well, 15 years ago today, you were going up against Sidney Crosby and the Ramuski Oceanic to open the Memorial Cup. What do you remember even from just making it to the Memorial Cup and, and getting through that front door that everybody talked about? Uh, yeah, I think we had a lot of pride as a, as a team. Uh, we did obviously start the season off undefeated, which uh, obviously painted a, a massive target on us, which, which helped us throughout the year. Uh, we knew every team that we were going to face uh, obviously wanted to be that one team that, that uh, beat us. So we got to see the best of, of everyone, and I think that sort of helped us um, you know, build uh, as, a, as a team and as individuals and, and cope with pressure. Uh, and then I think as the, the playoffs started going on, I think uh, um, Ramuski had a, a late undefeated streak, maybe. I don't know if it ran through playoffs or, or what. Um, I know their playoff system is a little different, where they go uh, the best team versus the 16th place team, and then they reseed it. So if there's any type of upset where the 15th team will knock off the number two, then the top team will end up playing the 15th seed so it's a little bit of an easier walkthrough um but i do remember they had something like 20 some odd games undefeated uh and obviously from ha having played with uh sydney and at the world juniors we obviously knew he was an exceptional talent um but coming into the game uh i, I remember i don't know why but i vaguely re remember um taking the team bus from the the delta to just the, a couple blocks to the jlc and we ended up we actually had a police escort and it was pretty cool because obviously our, our bus is all decaled up with the Knights uh, logo everywhere. So just to sort of feel the energy of people on the street seeing, oh, there's the Knights, you know, waving, sometimes maybe flipping us a finger if they're wearing a different color jersey. But uh, they, the game itself, um, you know, the, the technology has changed now where um, th there's a lot more pre-scouting going on with video. Like even in minor hockey, you can watch – uh, what the team is that you're going to be playing, even though you haven't seen them in real time. So there wasn't much of that sort of when we were playing. So we sort of went in, not blind, but we obviously knew Sydney was a very good player and they had some exceptional talent, but we didn't really know their style of play or anything like that, uh, just from word of mouth of other people. So when we, we and, and it was when the puck ended up dropping, uh, we knew we needed to win every game out outright. And I think early on, um, I think Mark Massot came down the wall in the offensive zone from a very poor angle and like stuffed it short side, like in a very, very small pocket. Um, and then it was sort of like, okay, we can breathe. Like there was a lot of nervous energy, uh, amongst the team and probably in the building as well. Uh, and then, uh, they just seemed to just come and come and come. And it was like, I don't think they really outplayed us in the first, but the score sheet said otherwise. And I remember walking into the dressing room in the first intermission, we, it was just quiet. And it was sort of the first time where it was sort of like everyone just take a deep breath, we're going to be okay type of thing. Like we knew we were a good team. We knew we could beat everyone in our league. And this was a new team from a different league we haven't played. And now we've spotted them a two-goal lead. I think it was 3-1 going into the first intermission. Um, yes, it was. 
and and I think we just sort of looked around. And it was like, you know what, like we can do this, right? And I think uh, Dale came in and, and we sort of changed. Uh, like I said, we haven't we didn't really get much chance to pre scout them other than word of mouth. But then we obviously found out that they just ran in five man units. So they ran Sidney Crosby. I think it was Mark Pouliot and Danny Roussan. Danny Roussan. Yeah. yeah, up front, and then on the back end, they had uh, Patrick Colomb and Mario Scalzo Jr. Uh, Look at your and, memory. <laughs> and the and the five of them just stayed as a unit, so they just ran with three, pretty much three five man units, uh, and spotted in their their fourth line uh, here and there. But um, we then changed our plan up a little bit. Like we we had a pretty deep lineup, obviously, as you know, uh, and we just strictly went with like a a heavy lineup against them um like a defensive minded knowing that you know we're probably not going to look for much offensive output while they're on the ice but if we can uh you know mitigate their scoring the rest of the team can sort of run wild on on the other two and a half three lines that they did have so uh we did obviously employ that i the game happens like you're so you're so much in the moment that you don't really you don't really get a chance to sit back and be like oh yeah like this so Everything just happened so fast, and I think I remember we we just started like bombarding them. I think we we outshot them fairly heavily, um, but still in the third period, I think it was only three two. Until um, you might have your memories, maybe. Well, I think than mine. you. I looked it up. I got to admit that, and and you outshot them. I think before overtime, forty three to twenty one. So you're bang on. Okay. You okay. outshot them by a margin of two to one, and Corey Perry tied the game in the third period. Right, sending it to overtime. Yeah, and then and then I don't even remember how he scored. That's that's bad. I don't but, either. <laughs> he scored a lot, so it's hard to remember just one. <laughs> but um, and then in in overtime, obviously, it's still you're still nervous. Um, and back then there was no there was no shootout. So even in regular season, uh, you would go to you would go to overtime for was it I think five minutes, and then that was yeah five on it. five. And I think we didn't, like, in the season, we didn't have that many overtime games. I'm not even, I don't remember playoffs or anything, but... Um, just two. Just two. And and then, uh, so in the, in the overtime, uh, I, don't, I don't even know if it was 5-on-5 five five or 4-on-4. Four four. This, my memory, is not as, as sharp as it should be. But the only thing I do remember is just, like, the, the, the bass echoing in the building of everyone yelling, two... <laughs> Corey, Corey Perry had jumped out with the puck and Mark Mathot had jumped in. And I think the, 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 the vocalization from the building started just outside of our own blue line. So it gave Corey ample, ample time to, to realize that he was in on a, on a two-on-one. Um, and then I, I actually, when it was happening, uh, a two-on-one, you know, you, 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 as a D-man, you want to take away the pass. Um, so I don't know if, if the guy had shifted over to Corey or whatever, but in my head, I was thinking Corey was going to, you know, take this to the net. I mean, I love Mark Mathot scoring prowess versus Corey Perry. I think our chances are maybe better with Corey, <laughs> but anyways, he slides it over to Mark and Mark makes a really good shot, um, low far side. Uh, and I, and I think he was, I think he was obviously first star, got the game winning goal, two goals and maybe assists. And I think that sort of, really rose his stock as far as um, as an individual uh, to, uh, who eventually went on to play pro uh, for quite a long time. 
Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, two goals and one assist. You have people who have to step up in order to win, and they step up from strange places. I counted it. He had 12 goals in his OHL career before that Memorial Cup. That was it. And in like 250 games, and he gets two in that game. And, and on top of that, too, like just to touch on 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 Mark as as a, a player, like he was a, a integral piece of our team as far as defensive mindedness. Like he was a guy that would be out on every penalty kill. We we'd have him up against the you know the top dogs on the other team. Like he a lot of stuff where you don't get much praise. Um, you know, you just sort of you know deny someone a chance to score or, or finish a check like and then we go down and we can score like no one really comes up and says oh great job mark you you made us win but so it was, it was really good for uh for him to have that moment uh against Ramuski where uh something that he doesn't accustomedly do uh came out and obviously got uh big praise for it well, it has been great reliving this for a few minutes with you, Danny. Thanks so much for taking the time for us. Be safe. Uh, all the best to you and your family. And uh, keep these memories alive because uh, they'll go a long way getting us through all this. Uh, thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye. That is Danny Savret. Captain of the Team of the Century, reliving a game 15 years ago in which the Knights defeated Sidney Crosby and the Ramuski Oceanic to open the 2005 Memorial Cup. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.